This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. I'm Danny Hogan. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stuff we can we're trust, talking all about isolation with Alex Hoban, who you may know from season one of The Circle, a TV show. Well, I was about to say here in the UK, but it's gone international. If you don't know it, I will talk a bit about that later. For now, though, I should also introduce another important gent, and that is my guest co-host today, Kyle Moore, who you may remember is joining me whilst Danielle takes a little bit of time out. He was a past guest with us earlier in the year on the theme of OCD. Really great interview you should go check out. And we are both starting off this intro feeling quite optimistic because here in the UK and in Ireland, we are recording this on the 17th of May. And that is an important date for many things beginning to unlock and so yeah it's it's quite crazy to see people in restaurants again and other changes like that and apparently we are allowed to hug people that don't live with us within reason wow yeah you can't just go on a hugging spree you're not allowed just to run around and just start hugging people here's the thing the messaging has been quite interesting because it was very optimistic but we are also concerned about the indian variant so the Mm, vaccine's going well things are going well But Mm -hmm. there has been a bit of a shift of, hooray, hugging again. And then two days later, all the government ministers are coming out Mm -hmm. being like, just, you know, careful, not too many hugs. Yeah, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Fill your hug quota, but don't like overindulge, right? Yeah, you don't need to hug everyone, I think is basically what Boris is saying. (laughs) Which is, yeah, fair enough. Which is, I mean, honestly, man, I was saying, uh, we were saying before we hopped on, like, I got my vaccine today, which Mm -hmm. is really exciting because the area that I'm in in Canada, my age group wasn't eligible for the vaccine for another month or so is what they were thinking. But there was some spots that had opened up. They had a a surplus of vaccinations at one of our local vaccination clinics. And it was like, basically, if anyone works with like the public, you know, come on down and we'll see if we can squeeze you in. And so as a supply teacher and as a server, I'm like around people all day. So I was like, I am absolutely going to go and see if I can get in. And just so happens that they had a extra Pfizer vaccine kicking around somewhere under the table and (laughs) gave me the poke. And I feel like, I feel amazing, man. It just was one of those things that this is the first time for me that I've really seen that light at the end of the tunnel of, of like, you know, there's still things to be worried about. The variants and obvious are, are a big concern for a lot of people. But just that that overall idea that like this pandemic, this past two years, this mental health crisis that's kind of hit all of us is maybe just a little bit on that upturn is really nice to see. Yes, for sure. And I'm so excited. A bit jealous, mostly excited. <laughs> I Honestly, man, I'm, I'm happy for you guys. I remember that... We, we were really fortunate because our population is fairly dispersed that there wasn't a lot of community spread. So a lot of restaurants were able to stay open and small businesses. I just remember that there was a period of about one to two months where we couldn't go to restaurants. And even just after that little bit of time, going back was this feeling of like, oh my God, you see all the, the servers who you know you get to know and they're bringing you beer and food and this incredible you know experience. And it's just the best, man. So I'm, I'm so excited for you guys to be able to have that, that joy of life again. Mm. It doesn't surprise me that you know your servers. (laughs) That seems very on brand, chatting to everyone. Yeah, Yeah, no, half of them are my neighbours, you know, you gotta know. (laughs) So yeah, it's good and it's nice to have 
this positive progress, even since we recorded this interview just a few weeks ago, that kind of contrast that isolation is such a serious theme and one I'm so glad to cover with this guest in particular. Yet at the same time, it's nice to see that, like you say, there is that hope past it, particularly when, I'll warn you now, some of these statistics are quite grim. So I'm glad to be coming at them where we are, put it that way. Mm. So first off, according to a meta-analysis by Julianne Holt-Lundstad, lack of social connection heightens health risks as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day or long-term alcoholism. Your face. Wow. Wow. Really? 15 cigarettes? That's, that's incredible. Like, that, that is very, very surprising to me. Yes. And I love a stat like this when it can illustrate something so clearly that something like yeah. loneliness, which can seem so subjective and hard to measure, it is mm. measurable. It does have mm. such a real impact, as we know. And like you've said, that impact, it's massive. Yeah. The isolation we've all been feeling, you know, that just gives you an idea of it. Yeah. For me, I mean, I think it's one of those things, too, that I think it very clearly draws a, a very strong connection between mental health and physical health. That idea that just being alone and that sense of loneliness and that like what happens with our brain chemistry and what happens internally as that happens has such a drastic impact on our physical. Cause I'm thinking 15, you know, I live in a pretty blue collar small town in New Brunswick. Like I, I know people who smoke 15 cigarettes a day probably. And, and to think that ju just by being alone is having that same health detriment is, is it's a very eye opening statistic for sure. <laughs> I've got this vision in my head now of you seeing a smoker coughing and you immediately clutch the person next to you. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be, that's the hugs, right? It's going to be okay. I'm here for you. <laughs> yes, I'm not, that's not going to happen to me. Yeah. But no, it's, it's a good stat for that reason. It, it so illustrates mm. it. And I've also got some data from a US study back in 2018 where Cigna found that loneliness levels at that point have reached an all-time high, with nearly half of 20,000 US adults reporting that they sometimes or always feel alone. And on top of that, 40% of the participants also reported they sometimes or always feel that their relationships are not meaningful and that they feel isolated. Wow. Pre-pandemic, eh? Well, exactly. My point, that's yeah. pre-pandemic. So if you're thinking nearly half of US adults saying they sometimes or always feel alone, at that point, if that's what we're going in with, you know, the stats are still coming together for the pandemic, right? And there's obviously challenges to collecting data at this point, but you can imagine how much more yeah. it will be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's been such a massive thing. I know, I know with me, a lot of my extended family lives in another area of Canada and not being able to see them for the past year. Like there's been a lot of life changes that have happened, you know, family to family kind of thing. And just even that I, the sense of isolation is kind of, is tough. And that's, you know, with, I've got four people in the house and I'm able to see my friends and everything, but even just that small element, let alone if you were living by yourself, let's say, or with one flatmate or something like that. I don't know. It's just, yeah. Wow. These are some pretty, like I said, eye-opening the last time, but like I'm, I'm genuinely shocked that it's that extreme. And I'm somebody who is around a lot of mental health stuff, and I, I still didn't know it was that bad. Yeah, and I think that speaks to how common these experiences are. That there mm, are people that we can think of pre-pandemic in every community that were lonely. You know, in yeah. certain groups like the elderly that are particularly lonely whilst they're shielding now. 
A lot mm. of them were lonely before. You know, a lot of these issues aren't new, but, you know, like we often say, hopefully this is a chance that the spotlight is on them. We can remember mm. this and we can go back to the world with some changes. Although there is one bit of good news from the research in terms of thinking of elderly people in that the study found a clear link between age and loneliness, but the opposite way around than we'd often think. So Generation Z were scoring about 10% higher than those of above retirement age in terms of the hmm. loneliness index. Hmm. I wonder why. Well, it, yeah, oh, 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 here we go. I, think, I just set you up. Here we go. They did also look at what does and doesn't correlate with levels of loneliness. And I think some of these might provide the answer. So higher income, regular exercise, family time, regular sleep were all found to correlate with lower levels of loneliness. Hmm. And so maybe some of the links are there. So higher income, maybe not when we think of retirement age, but as people get older, you know, oftentimes mm -hmm. their income is increasing. Family time, as you yeah. build a family of your own, perhaps. Regular sleep. I mean, if you're retired, you'd hope you're getting more regular sleep than some of us working sure. crazy hours. <laughs> so there's some potential positives there, although, again, pre-pandemic. And then what really surprised me was actually the things that didn't correlate. So social media, gender and ethnicity did not appear to influence loneliness scores. I would have thought social media would have been a big thing. I, I genuinely, when you when I first kind of proposed the question and you had uh, uh, some lovely answers prepared, it was one of those things where I was thinking, okay, maybe social media, you know, kids feel more of a sense of like virtual attachment versus like, you know, in-person attachment. But that's interesting that that doesn't play as significant of a role. Yeah. And I was thinking about it in terms of what that means, because we're so used to talking about social media and mental health. And mm -hmm. what I've come up with is that maybe it's not so much a case that it's not influencing loneliness as it's not making people feel less lonely. Mm in terms of social media, because it's not replacing right. a lot of other types of connection. You know, it's, it's mm. as we know from the pandemic, it's not the same. We can Zoom mm. call all day. It's not the same as seeing your family, hugging the Absolutely, people that yeah. matter to you. And, you know, all the, the stuff that we can overlook, like going out and having experiences together, you know, going on holidays, going to a restaurant together, spending time with people within different contexts can enrich mm. that as well, as opposed to being on your devices all day. And so yes. that's where I'm thinking of it's not necessarily like it doesn't have an impact. It's just not having a positive impact on right. loneliness, maybe. Right. Also, gender and ethnicity, I was surprised by those. But I'm wondering if that perhaps speaks more to the fact that loneliness is so broad. Loneliness, even back in 2018, is such a societal issue that it passes mm -hmm. any divides of gender or ethnicity. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I would have thought that possibly ethnicity would have played a little bit of a role just because of like how different cultures view the importance of connecting with one another. I, I thought that, that might have played a role. Gender, I'm not quite as surprised about. I think that especially when you're talking about a study that I'm sure was probably done confidentially, privately, I think it really does go to show that like behind closed doors, people are going to be honest and it doesn't affect one way or another. It's literally just like, are you a lonely human being versus like, are you a lonely man, woman, anything? It's just, it's, yeah, I, I get the gender one, but I'm, I'm very surprised about ethnicity. Yeah, but hopefully the positive we can take from that is that you know, connection is is possible and that the connection becomes more important than other factors. 
Yeah. Well, I think that at, at its core, I mean, I think that's such a human thing. I think that that's why loneliness and, and isolation has hit people so hard is because like, I, I always love to like look back at kind of like what got us to this point, like what we're doing right now is just storytelling. You know, we're telling little stories and like we're, we're coming together to tell these stories. And that's what people have done for years and years and years, whether it's going to like the pub and having a few drinks, it's like, or, or in the workplace, people are always hungry for connection. I think it's just like one of those human rules to life kind of thing that that's always going to just be subconsciously taking precedence in certain situations. So yeah, I think that's a great, it's a very good point for sure. And with that in mind, let's talk about our guest who... I really wanted to speak to Alex with this theme in particular because of being part of the reality competition show, The Circle. Essentially, the way that works, if you're not familiar with the show, is the contestants all live in the same building, but they have separate apartments and they don't meet each other face to face. Instead, they communicate through a like custom-made social media for the show called The Circle. And so they just speak to The Circle, it puts it into text and sends messages back and forth. And it's not until the very end of the show where they meet in person. With this in mind, Alex was kind of doing lockdown before that was a thing for the rest of us. Yeah. And so it was really interesting to kind of ask him those questions about how we're contrasted and hear about his experience in that where he was in that show for three weeks and didn't leave Mm. the building, you know, and that was something that we could still leave our houses. You know, he didn't have access Mm -hmm. to his phone. He couldn't speak Mm -hmm. to friends and family and check they were okay. And a lot of this made his time in there very difficult and led to a lot of feelings of anxiety that he shares in the episode. So such a lovely guy to chat to. He was really open with that conversation also something I found personally very fascinating about it was he won his season the original season of the circle here in the UK playing as a catfish because in this show oh, did. yeah so in this show you I, can, I've heard about this yes yeah so you can go in and play as yourself or not and he decided not instead he went in with pictures of his girlfriend and went by mm. the name of Kate so he wasn't playing her but he was playing as a kind of made-up woman who had his right. girlfriend's pictures. Mm. Which, you know, for the show, it's good fodder because he's sort of like, there's people finding his girlfriend hot and he's like, no. <laughs> and, you know, he's trying to come, like, chat to the girls and they do, he doesn't know what they're on about when they're talking about makeup and stuff. You know, it is right. quite <laughs> entertaining to see a lot of this stuff played out. Too but funny. what was particularly interesting for him specifically was as the show went on and he got more confident, he relied less on this character that he created and was more himself mm. just under a different name and photos. Okay. And that was a lot of what seemed to propel him in terms of popularity and then winning mm. the show. And so right. maybe in what is a reality TV show where we don't expect to get messages <laughs> to apply to real life, maybe there's something in that that being more himself was where the popularity came, being more authentic, even in a situation mm. where he was, by not definition, yeah. yeah. I've heard a little bit about the circle. And that's interesting that being a catfish on that show, I've heard that that's kind of a thing where some people go in and they pretend to be somebody else. I would find that, I'd find that super tough. Like you are in, you're being put in a boiler pot and you're not allowed to be yourself. Like I think that it almost makes sense that he eventually kind of found his own rhythm because when you're isolated and alone, pretending to be somebody else, you're not only being isolated from other people, but like 
in a way, I feel like you'd almost be kind of like isolating your own authentic self just away from, because you have to become that mindset of this catfish. So I think that, yeah, like by the end of it, I can imagine that if I was in that position, I would have almost had to have been more authentic. I don't think I would have been able to handle it. So yeah, kudos to him. Yeah. And perhaps even within that, it's quite a natural reaction, like you say, to survive it. Because the yeah. way the show is structured, you know, when when things come up, you know, obviously everyone's calling him Kate. So even your name you don't have in that process. Mm -hmm. And so maybe mm -hmm. as a kind of reaction to that, you would become more authentic because otherwise right. maybe you'd lose yourself in there. A hundred percent. Yeah. And especially like the understanding that you are going to come out of this house, like that that is not your whole life, that you have to immerse yourself in this, but then have to come out and then be yourself again. And that transition mentally, I can't imagine would be very easy either. Yeah. And I guess, you know, that's part of the reason why it's so fascinating to me, because we're all having elements of that now, that we're yeah. coming back into society and we're maybe feeling a bit rusty about some of our social mm. skills and we've not seen certain people for ages. Some mm. of us, like ourselves, have grown our hair, you know, <laughs> a lot of changes. So it was interesting hearing his perspective as kind of a fast-forwarded version to this, which, whilst it's a very specific situation he went through, is quite relatable. And, you know, mm -hmm. he's a funny guy, so it's it's moving, but also quite humorous at parts, chatting That's to great. Alex. And, yeah, really, really good I conversation. And so with that all said... The only other thing to, to mention is Kyle and his podcast. So if you've enjoyed hearing from him today or you have heard his previous episode with us about OCD and want to check out his podcast, it's called Life's a Wreck. And you can just search that. And there's even an episode with me in it. That's true. That's true. Bobby was one of the first podcasters I ever listened to. To be on a podcast that I used to listen to when I was going through the motions and then to become a podcaster and then to be on your podcast, dude, this is a very cool full circle moment for me. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to connect with you and your listeners. And this is, this is really great. So, so thank you, you know, genuinely from me to you, but also to your listeners who are supporting everything that you do in mental health and hopefully will connect with me through my podcast. I, I can't wait. <laughs> you're welcome and you're welcome for the matrix moment which is now guest <laughs> co-hosting a podcast you used to listen crazy, to crazy <laughs> crazy all right so with that all said we'll get into the episode with alex hoburn in a moment but first who's our sponsor let's find out this week we're sponsored again by the brilliant people at grass and co an independent business based here in the uk that is committed to crafting the best well-being products this includes candles, bath salts and sleep sprays that incorporate natural scents and botanicals that are all ethically sourced. They also sell CBD balms and oils that are batch tested to make sure they are all THC free. All these products are divided into their calm, ease and rest ranges to help you choose the best item for you. And I particularly love this because it means you find one product that works with you and then you can look at the whole range and all the different applications. And last week, for example, I talked about the Ease Muscle Balm, so obviously part of their Ease range. This week, I want to tell you about the Rest Pillow Spray. This comforting scent includes geranium, rosemary and frankincense that you mist over your bed to leave it smelling fresh, cosy and ready to sleep. And not for nothing, I can't read the word frankincense and not think it's good enough for Jesus, if that's not a selling point. To try these products out for yourself, use code HEALTH at grassandco.com slash health for 25% off plus free shipping as one of our listeners. That's grassandco.com slash health with code HEALTH. Grass and Co. 
a life inspired by nature. Hey, my name's Alex Hoban, and my earliest experience with mental health was when I lost my father at age 11 due to some implications with alcoholism. So I had no idea about grief. I had no idea. I'd never experienced death before. Not my own personal death, but obviously his death. I hadn't experienced anything to do with death before. And after that, I got some counselling and got some help from various resources. And that was my first kind of dive into the mental health world and the grief and, and obviously various implications caused by that grief since. So what were the conversations like around that time in terms of counselling being an option and how you'll be impacted? So I was very fortunate. I went to a private primary school. So for, the, for a short period of time, I managed to have help from, it was a Catholic school. So it, it was from a religious-based charity who would provide the school with clinical therapists and trained therapists. And then when I went to my secondary school, there was actually an in-house counsellor who was present. So I kind of did my first stint with, with the one in the primary school and then went to the secondary school in-house counsellor with, with my issues. But with all these things, for, for me, the, the conversation was mainly about how to grieve. And because I had no notion of it, it was just helping me through that process because it had been years before of stuff to do with alcoholism and things that I needed to deal with as well. So yeah, it was an understanding really, which I needed help with. And did you find that had a big impact on you at that time? Yeah, massively. It still has an impact on me to this day. What I find interesting about people who experience grief at that age is how almost, upon reflection, it was more of a band-aid on the wound rather than stitches. When puberty hits, for when you're an adult and for it all to come flooding back with issues that perhaps you that weren't completely dealt with and processed. I mean, I've got nothing against the, the help I was given at the time. I'm so, so fortunate to have been given that help. Right. Unfortunately, that is a very common experience, but particularly at those young ages, it's so difficult to know, I guess, even for you in hindsight, what might have been mm. better, because that's common in other environments as well. So adults that have short-term counselling, particularly CBT, often because of the short-term nature, the priority ends up being, okay, skills to cope day-to-day, as opposed mm. to going back into, okay, where do all these issues link? What are the deeper things to work on? Because if you, let's say, have six sessions, you're not going to be able to get to all of that. And so it becomes more, okay, how are you going to deal with it day to day? And I guess, you know, maybe at the time that was seen as the priority so that you could continue your schooling and deal with things to an extent, because of course, how does anyone wrap their head around grief? There's no ideal. And certainly as a child, it's even yeah. more of a difficult thing to comprehend. 100%. One of the most frustrating things on reflection was how many answers that I was looking for, which were answered with religion. Now, that's a completely different topic and something to discuss further. And I'm not here to offend anyone or portray religion in any particular way. But for me personally, the amount of stuff that they utilised religion to answer was quite frustrating. And it kind of made me a bit apathetic towards the concept of, re of religion in general over time, because just saying that religion is the answer to some pretty significant issues that I was having in my life at the time and still now is, yeah, was frustrating to experience. 
I can see that. And that's something we've talked about previously on the show, how religion can be a big factor in people's particularly social support around grieving. Mm -hmm. And so much of that does become the backbone for how to conduct grief in a way that people can find quite reassuring that there's a sort of ordering to things and religion provides a kind of structure. But then that's not to say that it has to be everything. And there there aren't Mm -hmm. so many avenues of support you can seek. For sure. I completely agree. And then fast forwarding to 2018, you signed up to The Circle, which I think initially, you know, pre-airing was very much sold as a social experiment to see how people interact online and how catfishing exists, how we can come across so differently on message than we do in person. And so what kind of brought you in about that concept? So I went to university and I I left university and got into social media. So I was working at a company called Unilad at the time, which lots of people know it's like a big Facebook publisher. I built my own social media following off the back of working for them and being one of the lead creatives there. And then further down the line, I kind of adapted into my own personal social media following and working solely on that. And when The Circle came around, it was around the time that the social media people had become very big on social media through Love Island and other reality TV shows. And the way The Circle was pitched was, this is a reality TV show where we're going to find who the most popular person is when anyone can be anyone. Mm -hmm. If I remember correctly, I was one of the first people cast for the show. And the way I was thinking was, I see my girlfriend does a lot better on social media than myself. So see females getting a lot more engagement on social media. So if I went on and pretended to be a woman, maybe I would be the most popular. And turns out that I was. But in terms of what kind of drew me in there was that notion of I've got the experience, I've got the background to be very successful at creating engaging social media content, right? But it it turned out to be a bit different to what initially everyone thought it was going to be, I think. Yes. Do you mind sharing a bit of that early experience of going in and how that dawned on you, what the experience was actually going to be like? So I think what I completely underestimated with going into a television environment is how professional it is. Early days, you're having your audition process. And as part of the audition process, you have a evaluation by a clinical psychologist. I think was the term that they used for for this individual. Anyway, so they give us an assessment and they determine whether you're going to be good on the show or not in terms of all the potential mental health implications of starring on something like that, whether it's being shot into the limelight and fame or whether it's the actual day-to-day elements of, of the show, which was a lot of isolation, a lot of kind of clever manipulation. Manipulation is a strong word, but but production from certain individuals who oversee a running of a show like that. And then as, yeah, as we kind of have touched on here, four weeks in total isolation with no contact to the outside world. So there was various things that perhaps I underestimated in there. For example, I took as my only pieces of entertainment, George Orwell's 1984 for the comedy value, because I thought that'd be really funny on TV that I was reading that. And then David Eggers' The Circle was another one. So those were my only books that I took in. And being in that environment, reading about that environment, yeah, pretty strenuous on the old mind. So I'm I'm rambling, but yeah, that's what drew me to it. And the early days of it was they kind of gradually take your freedoms away in a thing called what they call hiding. So you go into a flat, you live with a chaperone, and they basically take your phone away and each day the rules become more and more strict. So it's almost like a halfway house between having complete 
and, and utter freedom to do what you want and then having absolutely no freedoms, which is the end point when you go into the show. Right, which I guess makes sense. And I can see the good intentions behind that, that they're trying to gradually ease you into this process. But then yeah. at the same time, nobody likes to gradually see their options slip away. And I think that's something that we can all relate to, you know, at this point, knowing what it's like to suddenly find out that so much of your normal life and freedoms you can't experience. And so what was that like, let's say, the first day waking up and thinking, OK, this is my environment now. I don't know how many weeks I'm going to be here and I have to go along with what's expected from me. Well, I can be completely honest. And again, I, I feel like I'm offending loads of people on this podcast so far. When I signed up for a reality TV show, I do not think that I was the classic personality that people would associate with reality TV in terms of my ability to not identify and be aware of certain elements of the show that perhaps were involved in the production and the manipulation and stuff like that. So because I was hyper aware of these things and because of my background in production, I really struggled. The first morning I woke up, I woke up crying, like as in I woke up in tears. Now, part of that was because of realising the night before that and, and the way they position it is very difficult. So there's no, obviously, I know now that it was three weeks, four weeks, right? But when, when you're on the show, they don't give you an end point. And I think that's part of the psychology behind it, right? They say, that, like, it could be a week, it could be three weeks, it could be six weeks. You have to book, like, six to eight weeks, I think, out of your diary, including the hiding and all these things. So once you get taken into the show, you don't have your phone you have no concept of time because they remove all the clocks and you have no concept of what data is and, and all those things. So waking up in that environment and realizing that I can't leave to go anywhere that I want to, I can't speak or engage or, or see anyone that I want to see. And I can't even open a window because of soundproofing. It felt like prison to me and I'm a creative by trade and, and nature. So I've just had a full on breakdown and they got the psychologist in straight away on my first day so it was a good start we were, off, we were off to a hot start on that show and then it was just a big kind of like wave really it was up and downs from then really 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 steep ups and very low down points right um, and I can see you know how overstimulating the whole thing must have been that you're in a new environment it's a flat that's been created for you but nothing is familiar there your food is brought to you which some people might be like oh that's really convenient but you're still just so reliant on other people for everything and then yeah being limited on how much you can you can't go outside properly but you can go to the roof of the building for fresh air but even that's all kind of timed and you have to work within a production schedule which again you know I can see why that makes sense but then yeah it sounds like you became aware of perhaps very quickly, maybe because of your background, you came to the realisation even faster that you just have to go with this and you don't have a huge amount of control. No, 100%. And, and it's, it's the way that things are approached, perhaps in that environment. So the lack of control, I think, is what really got me. And, and as you say, yeah, you're allowed to go up onto the roof on their terms for a very, very short period of time. And, and actually, on reflection, I wish I pretended I was a smoker because those guys were living the dream. They were just up there all, to, all the time. So there's that. And then there's the realisation that you're very slightly and very slyly being produced into a certain narrative. So there was times when I wanted to speak to a certain individual and limit my talks with other individuals, just trying to avoid 
awkward confrontations and situations, but you're very much driven down that route somehow or another, whether it's suggestions from, we call it a voice in the sky, but there's like obviously production elements to it where people can tunnel in and, and suggest things to you or ask you to do stuff like go to the roof or go to the gym or other elements like every morning you're supposed to speak out loud who you want to talk to and they'll set that up throughout the day. And more often than not, not one of the people that I wanted to talk to actually ended up being on the agenda. So yeah, you're kind of thrown into these situations without having any control and and the lack of control is what really got me, I think. Mm. You've mentioned that there's a psychologist on hand, which was of course good when I heard about that in the first season. So what were those conversations like? What do you remember about how those went? I used to call her the ice queen because whenever she would come into the room, all cameras would suddenly just drop and be off and your microphone, you'd be able to finally take your microphone off and and actually speak honestly and truthfully to someone about something, which was a nice change because even at, at night they watch you sleep, which is kind of weird. You're in their care. They've got a duty of care to you 24 hours a day. So whether you're going for a shit or whatever you're doing, you have to be watched which is kind of awkward. So when she came in, everything would be turned off and and you'd finally be able to talk to somebody honestly and openly about your feelings and and have actually genuinely good advice from somebody that has years of experience working in that environment. So I actually really found it beneficial to have that resource on hand and it was always there, which is nice, whatever time of day. So sometimes I'd be struggling. You'd be shooting into the early hours of the morning and sometimes I'd be struggling then and they'd be able to come in and other times... It would be early in the morning and they're, they're still there. There was two psychologists on different shifts. But the, one of the main resources was what, what was called the floor producers. And these are the people that just give you a knock and just check you're okay. Because you're shooting for uh, an hour's episode each day. So you're not actually doing much actual show. You do it for like one hour, two hours a day. If you've got two hours times 12, that's 24 hours of footage they've got to cut down into one hour. So you have to kind of be clever with with how much you do. So say you do two hours actual shooting a day, the other 22 hours you're doing nothing and it's boring as hell. Yeah, and that must be quite a frustrating contrast that you're getting times when they need you to shoot late into the night, but then for much of that day you could have just been sat around. Yeah, and I think that's part of TV, right? And that's why when you're four weeks into being solely isolated, they're going to send you a video of your mum talking to you and saying how good you've been on the show because they know you're going to be great TV. So they know what they're doing every step of the way. And anyone that thinks that they don't is naive, I guess. Yes. And I always try and keep that in mind when I watch these things, because particularly those elements that we see in so many shows where there's the messages from family, Mm -hmm. I know on balance, I would certainly cry. (laughs) Almost anybody would in that situation. And I can imagine for you, because, you know, i experienced so much of it myself now in lockdown you do really worry about your family in this situation Mm. let alone if you can't even see them in any capacity at all 100 and and then you've got the added dynamic of what you're doing on the show so i was pretending to be a woman and i had no idea of how that was being received and then knowing that not only my girlfriend was out there exposed to the elements but my family and you never know what about your past is going to be brought up right because the press Luckily, it was kind of a cult show, so I never, it never got the mainstream attention that other shows get, which I'm very thankful for, don't get me wrong. So that you worry about all these type of things and you worry about press turning up at my girlfriend's work and asking her questions about our relationship and things like that, which actually did happen. Yeah, there's loads of worries that you have whilst you're in there. And unfortunately, they can't tell you a thing about what's going on. 
they say even to the point where like you can have these worries but you may not have even made the cut so far so you might not even be on tv like that's kind of a mind fucking itself like what am i doing here then (laughs) yeah you're giving it your rule you're there 24 hours a day without being able to leave and then to hear it might not actually air yeah must be so frustrating yeah not knowing kind of what level of reaction you'll get from the public not knowing anything no for sure and there was times when i refused to do anything a couple of things i haven't watched it back but there's a couple of things that i'm missing from because i just straight up refused at times it's funny where your kind of personality your mind goes when you're really put into these situations and i was never prepared to fully give it up but there was times when i was very close to quitting the show you mean yeah 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 i spoke to yolanda recently who was on the most recent season for my other show the one about dating and she said something very similar that she went to places in her mind that she didn't even know existed and yet it's interesting her experience and I wonder if this is partly that she was on it for a much shorter time she came away Mm. from it feeling really pumped of I've got through this I think I've done a really good job and I remember I think I even said to her how wonderful it would be if that was the experience of everyone that came out of a reality tv show they were like I'm unstoppable because I mean that's a big part of her personality as well she was like Mm. I did this I played two different people I did pretty well I think even though I got booted out early but how much of that is maybe being in for a shorter time yeah you certainly have your highs and your lows like there was times when I was like this is great I'm loving this I'm eating well on a Thursday we'd be able to watch Netflix and I'm not sure you've ever been so detached from media that you haven't heard music and you haven't heard you haven't watched a tv show in two weeks and then to suddenly have friends on is sick like it's such an (laughs) uplifting experience I've never appreciated anything so much than when one day they randomly played friends on Netflix Everyone was watching the same screen. I wish I could have been with people at the time. Everyone was watching the same screen. It was on in every screen in your house, full blast, like every episode in a day. It was great. So there's definitely highs in there. But the, but for me, it, it's just the fatigue of being in there from the beginning and being in there until the dying moments of, of the show where even after the final, we had to stay there and do a whole other day of press the next day. Even then, they weren't able to tell us when we were going to be sent home, right? So you're like sat there doing endless press interviews about the same thing. And they're still trying to produce you because... So in my series, one of the, the key stories was myself and Dan. When I have eventually met Dan, every bone in my body wanted to make a resolution, right? We wanted to, to sort of create a new status quo where either we like each other or we part ways or we just whatever. And I, I knew that because we had built up a relationship in the show, we would end up liking each other once he got over the initial shock and anger towards me. Now, their agenda was very much, we need to maintain this narrative as much as possible because this is what the press want, right? They want, Dan, why is social media so bad to the point that you could have been duped into thinking that this was a woman? And they kept us separate. They put us in separate hotels and they wouldn't let us speak to each other. They wouldn't let us chat to each other. They kept my phone off me for an extra night. And they wouldn't. So it was, it was just like, yeah. That wow. Was... Which I'd not thought of, but actually now you explain it doesn't surprise me because I definitely remember seeing that at the time. You know, I watched the, the first season. I love the show. I'm fascinated in it. And a big mm. part of it is those elements of how differently, you know, messages can be interpreted how someone can sort of lean on stereotypes of what it is to be, let's say, a man or a woman, 
and do quite a convincing job of it based on this set of stuff that's that's broadly made up and it's so interesting in terms of how sort of weird and flimsy our perspective can seem in that way you know when you see a message sent on a group chat and two people take it in a completely different way yeah really brings that home and yet I saw a lot of what you're describing play out in the media because like Mm. I think so many other people I was invested in are they going to make friends like is Dan going to be okay are you going to be okay are you guys going to end up at least resolving this and now I see exactly what you're saying that that was kept vague for ages because it kept people like me looking at the articles yeah exactly it kept the narrative in the media for as long as possible so we were kept in this kind of limbo where we were told not to talk to each other and we were kept in separate hotels and and separated and and yeah as you quite rightly have pointed out the ability for them to manipulate even the media to maintaining that narrative so my interviews were going it was a game show I won the game show fair and square within the rules the idea was anyone could be anyone like Dan's narrative was I can't believe somebody went on and pretended to be a woman and like realistically there'd been many points in the show that I had said specifically you never know who anyone could be in the show and I was constantly hinting and constantly suggesting it that was frustrating as well because it kind of put a taint on the win my brother stayed with me that night and we were kind of we had a security member outside our hotel and we couldn't leave and it was all a bit stressful and I didn't sleep a wink and then the next morning we went in for the shoot which was they shot like this other episode, which I don't think they've done since. This last episode, which was like aired a week later, which was like basically our raw reactions from the show. And there'd been a few things that I'd really struggled with in there, such as like losing weight and becoming very fatigued and things. And, and that last, if you watch the last episode, you'll really see me at my worst and my lowest point of the whole thing. And that was just like no sleep, lost like a stone, no energy. And then having to talk about the fact that I was guilt-ridden for winning a show, which I probably won quite fair and square and shouldn't really be guilty for. but That's understandable because your perception would have been so warped by that point that you're in such an echo chamber. I'm interested particularly in having this conversation now when so many of us have gone through that experience. Like I yeah. talked to you off air, it's almost like you did lockdown before it was commonplace. And so do you mind sharing some of the the realisations you had in terms of being isolated with yourself, things you learnt about yourself?
Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.